This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Sadia Patti. And I'm Brian Kotick. And we are your co-hosts for yet another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. It's 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1% prioritizing your family over your podcast. Sadia, what is this? We almost met in person and then <laughs> almost. You, you decided something else was more important. And now we're sitting in our boring rooms, separate as always. Oh, yes, gosh. I'm going to put it online. My, yes. Um, my old husband has broke. No, he's blacked his back. He's not that old. I'm just making a joke. Just, we work too hard. Because of COVID, been sitting down for too long. So, yeah. That's why we were going to go for champagne this I know, Monday afternoon I know. after we record. But instead, here we are with our microphones and our sad living rooms. Oh, we'll do it. We'll do it some other time. Like we say in French, ce n'est que partie remise. So next time there'll be champagne and macarons. I promise. Mm. Yes. <laughs> right, we'll Fine. That. Let's just keep canceling. So <laughs> Every time I add something else. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in terms of pen, yeah, like a penalty de retard, like the liquidated damages thing. Or... <laughs> so what are you guys doing? Uh, it was a busy week in London. It was disputes week. And uh, something, some, someone told me that both of you were in attendance of not only the week in itself, but also the arbitration ball. Can you speak about that? Oh, there's Brian. lots to talk yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the Disputes Week itself was, well, f- funny story. I showed up for the first day of Disputes Week, which was held virtually, but I was at um, Central Hall at Westminster when someone working at the <laughs> conference said that it was virtual for day one. Oh, yes, I- you did mention that was hilarious. <laughs> so the first time I'd worn a suit in probably three months and I was like late and sweating and I was like, oh, no, oh, no, this is That's terrible. so funny. <laughs> then you did get some good mileage out of your various suits because then it was basically the rest of the day 24 seven exactly talking to people talking yeah talking to people in your case like from a podium because you were actually moderating a discussion not just mingling but actually oh you substance. were moderating a, a panel Brian. yeah so i moderated a panel it was brought to you by every acronym known to man um the like uh rising arbitrators initiative the Gr- campaign for greener arbitrations the young canadian arbitration practitioners arbitra Um, All of these organizations had this cross-section panel about getting your first appointment, managing your first appointment, and getting future appointments or repeat appointments after that. And so we had a panel of, uh, I would I don't want to say young uh, appointees, but maybe new appointees or people with just a few appointments underneath their belt talking about how they got their first appointment and how to continue doing that. And I think 
I mean, this is me speaking about my own panel, but uh, it was a fresh perspective, I would say, and maybe something that's not really talked about openly because it is such a you know, murky situation finding your first appointment. Um, so it was just kind of everyone giving their personal experiences and and also giving some slight advice on on how to do it. But that was that was good. Um, Very good. The the disputes week itself was great. It is gen- it is quite general the topics because it has to you know it's not just arbitration specific, even though it heavily shifts in that in into that realm. But um, it was, yeah, it was quite general about the witnesses and, um, you know, sustainability was a huge issue that came up in several panels. The um, wall was supposedly 900 people, which I actually believe because it really felt. 900 people. That's yeah. approximately, I think, the amount of people at the Paris arbitration cocktail, opening cocktail, which is huge. This was huge. I thought about you when we walked in and how <laughs> it was like a super spreader event. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Did you guys get any notification of like COVID afterwards or no? Not really. I don't yeah. think we do get those anymore, do we? There's no track. Yeah, I think that might be a London. No, like, a, you know, courtesy notification oh, from your I friends. See. Be I like, see. oh, no. Yeah, no. Okay. I think no, no, no. That's not that's not mentioned the c word. We're way past. Yeah, exactly. We're <laughs> we're we're, we're both. Yeah, I hope we can we can say that. We're like the three monkeys, you know. We, we don't see, we don't hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still doing that virtually. Do you have any funny <laughs> yeah. stories from your experience at the ball, Joel? Any? Uh... Not really. <laughs> We didn't stay for very long, did we, Joel? No, we're old. We both left pretty okay, early. Okay, so you need to give a little bit more background for those who weren't there. So what was the purpose of this ball? Was it It's, just a, it's a charity together? ball. Okay, so to raise money. Yeah, for right. Save the Children. Okay, and so how much money was, was uh, We're was the wrong like a, people to ask about this. I think oh, it was about you? half a million pounds. Yeah, actually. I think so too. That's a lot of money. Wow, yes. okay. And so what was like, did you have to bid on like some They were both with like silent auctions, which weren't that silent because... Uh, whenever a bid was made, it was projected on big screens in the dining room. Right. Okay. So you could see like our friend Jawad was like bidding on a dress f- for his wife. And what? some like partner at a law firm was bidding on a signed Gary Bourne book. And some <laughs> uh, like retired arbitrator is bidding on a t- ski trip and you know, their oh, name okay. and then the amount comes up in order to okay. obviously encourage people to outbid their friends. Right, right, and, right, right. and then there was a, a, a live not so silent auction as well with, with okay. an eccentric uh, auctioneer person. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you stage. get anything out of that did you guys bid and get something or no no no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> you're like we bid but <laughs> okay. well i was a guest at someone else's table and i think the bids showed up as part of the table oh uh, right okay. and so i didn't really know how payment worked and i'm sure i could have figured yeah it you're out, just like I, stressed about I it i was really stressed about it <laughs> uh but it was fun and we i sat next to some you know really interesting people people that i would never have come across um you know, if in a, in a normal conference setting and it was quite relaxed. So it, it was fun, I think. And I think everyone was desperate to get out and exchange gossip items and, and blind yeah, items. Gossip items. That's good. So what happens legally if you bid and you don't perform on your bid? That's a question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I think that. there was a whole class about this in law school. Yeah, it's a classic <laughs> conundrum, isn't it? That could be the a conference topic. Contract formation. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, also exactly. so easy to bid in someone else's name because there were iPads on the tables and you just entered your name and your amount. So it would be so easy to like, prank someone and have a friend of yours. Yeah, like Gary Bourne. A thousand Born. pounds on a Gary Bourne book, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Gary Bourne bidding on his own books. Yeah, I will give you $15,000 for my books. <laughs> 
That's funny. Um, but yeah, I sat next to an, the organizer or someone on the executive committee for ICA in Scotland, and that's still going forward. And we're not official media sponsors yet, but um, if I, those that conference is really going forward in the end of middle of September, yeah, um, and registrations are still open, and they still want a lot of people to register. I presume because it's so close, everyone's going to register last minute. But mm-hmm. uh, registrations are open, and it is moving forward come rain or shine. You mean close, as in geographically close to London, because there are also other places in the world that aren't close. Uh, Right, European. It's because it's in Europe and not in Australia. Um, People. Joel reminding Brian that we are not the center of the universe. People (laughs) listening to us come from Australia is actually it's very close. Australia, if you're in Australia, for example, or New Zealand, somewhere else. Actually, talking about this, I didn't talk to you guys about this, but I think I should say there was an email that circulated earlier from ICA, and there's an ICA inclusion fund. Um, so oh. you can uh, put in applications for funding to attend I- the ICA Congress in Edinburgh. Uh, oh, really? And it's, uh, yeah, it's a person to its diversity and inclusion policy. Um, and, you, and the deadline to do so is on uh, 30, 30 of June, 2022. So maybe we can put the link to that. Yes, in if, our, I, if in our I remember, podcast. or if you remind me, yeah, I, I post I'll, this episode, that's absolutely. a very good idea. But I think that. we should encourage our, our um, applicants there from all over the world to apply. And yeah, I ICA think is one fantastic. Of, if, if you're doing yeah. one arbitration conference, do do ICA. That's right. I would agree. And it's, it's uh, the only, I mean, the only, one of the conditions is that you need to be an applicant um, you need to be a member of ICA or Young ICA, and Young ICA is free, obviously. So you can just um, register to be a member of Young ICA. Very good. Marvelous, marvelous. Now we're Why talking not? ICC scrutiny of draft arbitral awards. And then, are we, what, what are we doing then, Ryan? What? Then I will talk about uh, the power of arbitrators to exclude counsel and the exclusion of counsel in general. Um, that will be our second substantive topic. So good. And happy fun time is pleading foreign law or maybe also deciding issues on foreign law, i.e. law that you are not formally qualified in. Most law is foreign to me. To us. Yeah. <laughs> to us and, <laughs> and to most arbitration practitioners. Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, right? exactly. 100%. <laughs> so we have no guests, no manuscript, no plans. My favorite kind of episode <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> Let's start with ICC scrutiny. A distinguishing feature of the ICC arbitration rules is the court scrutiny process, the the ICC court scrutiny process. It is not unique to the ICC, however. Other institutions also scrutinize arbitral awards and here I need both of your help. I need Sadia's help to pronounce the name of a French lawyer. I butchered it a couple of times before. He's a Hughes Hubbard partner, used to work at the LCIA, has written a book. Remy Gervais. Yeah, thank you very much. Spared me that. He has <laughs> written a book on institutional management of And of he cases. also used to work at the LCIA, which does not. Exactly. But he that. has helpfully yeah. dug up a list. I know I don't have the book in front of me, but he mentions that 10 other 
arbitral institutions that are, that are sometimes used for international cases also do scrutinize awards. And now I turn to Brian, because you profess to know a few of those, which goes beyond my skills. I've just found three uh, in my quick research. Uh, it would be CTAC, the Danish Arbitration Institute, and the German Arbitration Institute are others. Doesn't, doesn't the SCC do it as well? No. That's, no? Oh, not. okay, sorry. Okay. They do not. Uh, but so this is a good, just like a, a caveat when we start. This is not restricted only to the ICC, but of course the ICC is the ICC and the biggest institution. So we will focus the rest of this segment on the ICC's scrutiny process. The scrutiny process basically means that before any award is actually rendered or issued formally, the tribunal, I was going to say will, but that's actually not the case. The tribunal shall submitted to the ICC court for scrutiny. So this is a mandatory part of the ICC rules that the parties cannot derogate from. Mm. And the court then, I am not exactly sure about how the internal workings are set up within the court, but I know that typically, and I am very happy to stipulate here at the, at the outset that I don't really know anything about the inside of this process, but nor do you guys or, or any of our, most of our listeners at least. So, we, we, we can guess a little bit. Uh, there's typically one person on the ICC court, and that's a member of the court. We all know people who are members of the ICC court. It's prominent arbitration practitioners on rotating mandates. Part of the, the task, if you're a member of the ICC court, is that from time to time you are asked to scrutinize a draft arbitral award which is an honor, of course, uh, and, and also something that, that may be very helpful to the tribunals, depending on, on how it's done. That person or the, the court, legally speaking, then returns the draft award to the arbitral tribunal, suggesting modifications to the draft award. And this, um, the court scrutinizes uh, both points of form as well as substance. And this is somewhat not controversial, but a bit disputed sometimes because uh, you can't always tell exactly what is form and what is substance of any draft arbitral award. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the court can require changes in the form of the award, but they may only suggest changes as to substance. Mm -hmm. um, and when it comes to form, there's an ICC checklist. I think most people who have worked on an ICC case, yeah. especially if you're on the tribunal side, there's mm -hmm. an ICC checklist and they list a number of uh, formal points that tribunals must consider before submitting a draft award for scrutiny. So those are the ones that that you know that 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 is something that the court will look at as part of its scrutiny. Then the court can basically return it with there are three scenarios. One, either the draft award is approved as is, which I think has happened like six times in the history of the ICC. Two, the draft award is approved subject to certain comments, which is the vast, vast, vast majority of awards submitted to the court. Or three, the draft award is not approved, which is also rare that it happens. Mm. Um, so, and I also think we maybe shouldn't go into that, but I think the ICC secretariat is also involved in this process before it goes to the court. Uh, this is also, again, informally what I understand from speaking to people who work at the ICC, a responsible managing counsel at the secretariat will prepare a report on the background of the case mm -hmm. uh, and also include comments from the secretariat because unlike a court member, the secretariat, they're like the, the one constant. They have all the institutional know-how. They see a lot more awards and they will also be helpful in this process. Um, 
I should ask you before I go any further, do any of you, either of you, have any experience with ICC court scrutiny? I guess you are not sitting frequently as ICC arbitrators yet. Do you see any of it as a party other than a delay at the end of the award because there's an extra step? Um, I, uh, I don't know how this came up and how I can keep it confidential, but I have seen scrutiny <laughs> slash scrutinized an award. Um, so I have seen it, though uh, not in, within the context of the ICC court. Um, and then I have also seen um, a delay caused by that from just the tribunal's perspective but not as counsel. Mm. I can also caveat as to confidentiality, of course. I'm not, I was not involved in the matters that um, I know of, but I know that um, first of all, from the user's perspective, um, often when we are asked, you know, whether to choose an arbitral institution or, to, you know, on, versus another one, scrutiny is, is, is an element of discussion because mm -hmm. the fees are not the same. Um, and so in order to justify um, certain additional fees and not, you know, to give an example, but I will between the ICC and the LCA, for example, then you would say, well, you know, it's completely different. You have a ICC court behind their review the awards and so on and so forth. So that's from the user perspective. I think there is um, a consideration that it might be useful to have a second look of the award. Um, and then in terms of experience, having seen it from close or from far away, <laughs> I have seen it multiple times that the ICC does scrutinize an award and recommends, issues recommendations to kind of, you know, not, of course, change the substance of your decision, mm -hmm. but maybe draft things a bit, you know, because you haven't taken in consideration something that was important and the way it's drafted. Um, and that I think is like in the ideal world, that is of course mm -hmm. the selling point. The purpose behind mm -hmm. this is to make the award better so that yeah. it can sustain challenges or be enforced more easily. You have, as mm -hmm. I said, a second pair of eyes, mm -hmm. an experienced pair of eyes reviewing the award. And it's not just typos. I think I just need to clarify that, right? Because some people say mm -hmm. it's just someone reviewing it and editing the language. No, it's not just that. It's not, of course, rendering a decision in a different way, but I think the mission is also to, to make sure that it's compliant with the rules themselves, mm -hmm. the ICC rules. Um, and that's why you mentioned the checklist, right? There's a checklist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and also sure. the mandatory place of arbitration, mandatory rules yeah. at the place of arbitration to make sure mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that there's no obvious mistake that will make the award unenforceable. Mm -hmm. which is, of course, something that the tribunal should be doing, but there are a lot of things to keep in mind and you can't always trust it, especially if it's a smaller case or a not very well-pleaded case, etc. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have a second check. And I think this is something that the ICC emphasizes a lot in their uh, marketing and when they talk to people. But the despite that, I have also seen a lot of requests for rectification or clarification, rectification, I would say. Which is, of which awards, are, you mean? yeah. Uh, is it a request for rectification? You know, when there's some errors. Uh, correction or interpretation. Uh, correction, correction, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, because there were some errors in the calculation of damages, for example, which is important. And that's <laughs> something that scrutiny, scrutiny will do. That is one of the items that they list that they will look to, which is, are the figures correct that have been put in there? Are the calculations correct? Yeah. Is interest correct? Have they included mm -hmm. dates, rates, compound mm -hmm. versus simple? costs. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they do get into those, those numbers. 
And I think it should. so far, what we talked so far, I think it's relatively uncontroversial as long as you are a supportive factor in that it might take a little longer than it would otherwise have. In the average case, that is actually probably a good, like most people would be comfortable with that because the end product is better. The tricky mm-hmm. part, I think, for some at least, and, and I'm now speaking partly as an academic, former academic, and also as someone who works mostly with treaty arbitration, is that this happens also in treaty arbitration. Mm-hmm. And in the commercial sphere, I think it's it's not problematic at all that you have the involvement of the ICC court because it is such a well-established institution and and people buy into this setup. In the world of treaty arbitration in particular, I think I've heard states be a bit uncomfortable with the idea that you, you have an unnamed member of the ICC court that the parties have not appointed. You know, there's mm-hmm. tribunal members, you know who they are and they are there ideally because you've researched them pretty carefully and you know who you're playing with. ICC court is is uh, an entity made up of well, business lawyers. If you ask a cynical foreign ministry person, <laughs> it's not professors of law. It's it's practicing lawyers. And if you are not exactly sure exactly what they're doing, that might be a source of discomfort for some states and for other parties as well, frankly, if you suspect that they are somehow influencing not just the form, but mm-hmm. the substance, mm-hmm. which we don't really know. If, if they do, of course, uh, unless you, you work at the court. I, I looked at some uh, of the, the written reports that the, the rapporteur appointed the court member did in treaty cases for my book. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, you know, one thing that is very important for the enforceability of the award is that the jurisdictional decision, the jurisdictional analysis is mm-hmm. solid. And that is something that is both form and substance in many ways. Like, have you, have you really considered this jurisdictional objection properly? Can You can develop this part. Have you looked at the MFN, whatever, if, if it's a, a treaty? That happens in treaty cases, really? Which, which because uh, it's not, not ICSID, right? Or ICSID. Not ICSID, no. So yeah, the ICC okay. has a lot of treaty cases too. Right, okay, okay. Yes, and the rules. The, yeah, we forget that. That's true. It's a small and percentage. The of rules cases, apply so, yeah. the same there. And then, then I mean, okay. you think you can, you can craft an argument if, if you wanted to, and some people have that, that. Mm-hmm. It's different when you have a state's consent in a treaty and then it's the ICC court is scrutinizing it. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything fishy going on, but the, you know, the lack of transparency that we have talked about in so many different iterations in investment treaty arbitration. Mm-hmm. Yes, because this is not published, is it? I mean, no, you said you, were at, you had access to some notes, but it's not published. Exactly. So there's no data also on how many awards that have um, not been validated or... I think there's data on, or there was at least a, a, a while back on the, like how many have been approved, how many, but it's, it's oh, I have those. I have those numbers. Oh, oh Ryan. Look who's done his Come homework. On. And, yeah. You're right. It is a while ago. It's from 2012. Um, of 491 cases, 483 had some minor amendments that you were talking about, Joel. Six had no amendments and 59 were resubmitted. And hmm. the average delay by scrutiny was 29.74 calendar days. And they chalk hmm. up that delay to any unusual delay was due to translations of awards, the poor quality of the award, whether they're extremely long, whether they had to be submitted to the plenary, which is like a state, um, or the failure of the parties to pay their advance on costs. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that gets submitted to the plenary, Joel, which I think you'd appreciate, is to, if there's a dissent. Right, 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 right. Mm. So, so the average... 
case, uh, you don't need a plenary meeting of the court to approve the, the draft award, but in some cases you do. And one is when a state is a party, as you said, and the other is when there's a dissent, because then I guess the, the level of necessary scrutiny is heightened uh, because you already have a red flag saying that there might be some issue here. Right. And they won't, they won't scrutinize the dissent, but they will use it. They will review it in order to help their scrutiny. Mm. Oh, okay. And sorry, wh- uh, where does the data, the 2012 data from the ICC itself comes, or is it more general? Um, I suspect it's from the ICC commentary, right? The, the secretarial guide? Yeah, yeah. They, and they, had a, they, just, they released a practice note in 2016 for practitioners uh, okay. about scrutiny because of this critique about there being a lack of transparency. Right, okay. So that's, that's from the ICC only, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah, okay. Very interesting. We should also say uh, that it's something that uh, divides the arbitrator community, this ICC scrutiny. Uh, and mm-hmm. I am completely speculating again, as, as always, especially in this <laughs> segment so far. My sense, I'm curious to see if you would agree, is that younger arbitrators really appreciate this. Arbitrators who are breaking into the field or, or mm-hmm. having their first two, three, four, five appointments. If you don't have a secretary, especially if you're a sole arbitrator, it's so nice to have the ICC court with an experienced institution mm. help you right. out. Yeah. Whereas very established arbitrators find this annoying because they think that it's their mandate and the ICC court person, the rapporteur, uh, should not be, unless it's, you know, obvious formal points should not mm-hmm. be involved in this at all. It just adds time. You know, I, I know better, basically. Mm-hmm. Th- that is my sense that senior arbitrators would rather just skip the scrutiny process. I don't know how parties feel about this, though. I'm sure there's some sort of survey out there. I don't have a, a gut feeling. I don't know. Well, I, yeah, they really don't know what's happening um, yeah. during the process. So it's hard for them to I think tell. it's, I mean, in my experience, usually they welcome, I mean, if they've chosen ICC as opposed to another institution that doesn't scrutinize there, they, they welcome this, you know, additional pair of eyes, like you mentioned, I think so, but I, it's uh, in, with respect to delay, you mentioned that the additional delay was approximately what 30, day, 30 calendar days. Yeah. That's not a lot, is it? I think no, it's not. Some, some tribunals, and I'm sure Jewel can confirm, take a lot of time issuing their awards. So it's like when we talk about costs and fees, we, we, you know, to contest, um, to talk about how arbitration expensive, the real cost is the cost of lawyers and not the cost of the mm-hmm. institution. Well, here, I think right. the real delays is the one maybe caused either by the parties or by the tribunal, but not, I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to be defending any institution, but I'm <laughs> trying really hard to make this work, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I will they, say, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Mine, mine was stupid. <laughs> um, they, the ICC does have incentives and sanctions, we can call them, uh, ah. based on this delay. So if, you, if your award is expedited, so the ICC, it has six months from the term of residence to issue the award that can obviously be extended. Um, but the, or, the court can increase fees if you submit it before the deadline, or they can reduce the fees of the tribunal um, if it's uh, past the deadline or past the expected deadline. And they can reduce it up to 20% of the fees if you, if you take too long. Um, mm. And they will also, um, the administrative expenses of the ICC will be decreased if the scrutiny period takes longer than, than expected or mm. than what is mm-hmm. average. That's a great point. But has this been used? Don't know. 
Don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us. It feels like a segment we should do with somebody from the ICC court or secretariat. Yeah, I think we're going to get phone calls after that. (laughs) Yes, it has been used. Yes, we use it. Yes. Yeah, and also there's actually statistics readily available that you could have worked with. (laughs) I will say this, though. I think it's very, uh, it sounds like a dream job. I'm sure people who who do this on the court on a regular basis do not think it is a dream job. But I think it's an interesting thing to get a draft arbitral award in your hands and be like, improve this, please. Mm, like read, an editor yeah, yeah exactly it's just like editing an arbitral award like, yeah read this and please make it better mm. i would do that full time if someone were willing to pay <laughs> they are paid for it jill it's not free <laughs> oh you mean like proper money <laughs> no yeah. i'm just kidding <laughs> no, i meant full time like as an editor <laughs> yeah well yeah i'm sure it's very interesting but they must review hundreds and hundreds of awards i suppose and different kinds, though, from like mm. small, small, small mm-hmm. sole arbitrator, mm-hmm. low value disputes to heavily contested yeah. construction cases and investment treaty cases. And they must, I think their review, is it dependent on the amount of dispute or is it dependent on the names of the arbitrators? Uh, Maybe we should just start compiling a list of questions and ask someone <laughs> yeah. who actually knows how to answer them. <laughs> I think that was all before we start revealing our ignorance even more we should move on to brian's <laughs> uh, not, not so prepared segment <laughs> thank you jewel so this segment we will be talking about disqualifying counsel in arbitral proceedings and the basis for the segment comes on the fact that there's so much soft law instrument so many soft law instruments that have kind of identified a particular problem and whether there's a need and if there is a need to what extent we should be regulating the permissible conduct of counsel in international arbitration and then identify therefore on how we're supposed to um, resolve these issues. And I think the problem and the reason why there's so much soft law is because there's differing norms and expectations that may threaten the integrity and fairness of the process. But that typically comes if we're talking about the regulation of counsel from our respective ethical rules. And there we have um, many codes of conduct. You don't you have your ethical codes of conduct from your bar association, but you also have um, codes of conduct that have come out as kind of guidelines. So the AAA, if you look at the US, AAA and JAMS both have ethical guidelines for party representatives. Um, CRB has guidelines for good practice and codes of ethical conduct. And we have the IBA guidelines on party representation that um, is kind of the hallmark or the starting point, a hallmark for the segment, let's say, uh, for regulating uh, misconduct in, of counsel in, in arbitration. And the definition of misconduct isn't really, uh, it's not really defined in the IBA guidelines, but the LCIA had an an- has an annex to the rules that I didn't even know was there, but it has general guidelines for counsel conduct. And there we have misconduct as or the regulation of conduct as forbidding behavior intended to obstruct the process or impair its integrity, such as raising challenges to jurisdiction that are known to be unfounded, knowingly making false statements or relying on false evidence, knowingly concealing documents that the tribunal has ordered to produce, or engaging in ex-party communications with the tribunal. So these are quite obvious. But if we narrow the scope of this segment to the most popular sanction of, uh, of misconduct disqualification, and that would arise in when the misconduct has to do with the um, 
exclusion of a new legal representative when he or she has a relationship with an arbitrator that would create a conflict of interest. And this typically comes when there's a late addition of counsel that basically imposes a conflict of interest from a tribunal that's already been constituted. And that then if we look at the IBA guidelines, they have three guidelines for this. It's guidelines four, five, and six. And it says that Number four says party representatives should identify themselves to the other party or parties and the arbitral tribunal at the earliest possible opportunity and promptly inform them of any changes to such representation. Number five says once the arbitral tribunal has been constituted, a person should not accept the representation of a party in the arbitration when a relationship exists between the person and an arbitrator that would create a conflict. And then number six, the guideline number six is the arbitral tribunal may, in cases of breach of guideline number five, take measures appropriate to safeguard the integrity of the proceedings, including the exclusion of the new party representative from participating in all or part of the arbitral proceedings. So the the um, kind of the general standard is not really that the council uh, is acting unethically and taking the representation or that the party is some somehow um, not conducting itself properly or ethically by including an, a new party representative. But it's basically that if there's compelling circumstances to justify that there would be a threat to the integrity of the proceedings. Um, so if we look to the IBA guidelines basically have it as this notification. So that's kind of the first measure to safeguard against any misconduct that you have to notify about party representatives. We know that in kind of the request for arbitration and most institutional rules, they tell you to list the party representatives and, and to identify. Can I ask you here, the one thing that I've seen inconsistent practice on, what mm-hmm. about power of attorney in this context? Is that mm-hmm. something that in your experience as mandatory in in arbitrations or something that may show up every now and then or something that you've never really dealt with in arbitration? I actually dealt with it very recently in a case uh, having to do with powers of attorney in a Middle Eastern country where the requirements for powers of attorney, according to the local law, was extremely specific and needed to be in a certain language and needed to have certain language in the power of attorney to make it valid under the, the local law why? Not because of the arbitration itself, but because of any enforcement um, mm. and, and recognition and enforcement in the local courts, because one of the grounds is if there is an invalid power of attorney, um, which is fun. I, it was It's perplexing because if you're kind of refusing, you've basically gone through the entire arbitral proceedings with some sort of power of attorney. And if you're kind of objecting at the later stages that it was invalid, have you waived that right? Because you've Mm -hmm. let the entire proceedings progress without raising an objection. And as an arbitrator, what do you do with that objection Mm. if you're not competent in the local law, which goes to our happy fun time topic. Yeah. (laughs) I've also had to deal with this multiple times. Objection. Yeah. Objection from the other side on the validity of um, the power of attorney. Also, in their, yeah, I mean, you know, then we had to, um, we we have to explain <laughs> that it was a valid power of attorney, but because also it it was related to the fact that the other side was uh, saying that the um, not only the power of attorney was probably not valid, but also if um, the people who gave us the power had the power themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, so if it was the right entity or the right representatives of that state, um, who were giving us the power. And which law governs this though? Ah, very good. Invalid power of attorney. Yeah. Very good question. 
very good question. Right. Because if are you doing it on the right, the validity? Of, well, yeah, because it's your representation as a lawyer. So you should it would typically down, be done by the rules of the person being granted the authority. But I guess in order to grant the authority, it's monitored by the, the rules of the incorporated entity or state. Mm. I mean, it, 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 yeah, exactly. it reflects your relationship to your client. That's the mm-hmm. relationship it reflects. At the same time, if you put it on the record of an arbitration, it also becomes part of whatever governs the arbitration. You know, what, mm-hmm. what's, what's a, who's a valid representative in an arbitration, which is presumably a Lex Loki arbitrary issue. Like, where so the is the seat? arbitration seated? Yeah. And if there's no seat, and if there's no seat, if it's like an exit case, then. we're just asking questions we should just name this podcast like the arbitration questions that's we don't provide solutions we just ask questions yeah it's for discussion we're prompting discussion guys just as a parenthesis also i was just looking um because obviously this is also related i think brian you're going to mention it or maybe not but um the draft code of uh ethics I i no go ahead no, 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 because we did we did an interview, right, right. with um, on on that draft code, and I think there's a lot of discussion on, you know, how counsel also should behave themselves more than just a double heading issue in investment arbitration, mm-hmm. uh, the concept of civility, and I think it's still under discussion um, whether arbitrators have that power to issue sanctions or not. Um, yes, right, uh, absolutely. Joel? And I was just right. looking at that, and um, it's I don't know if you guys know, but we are on the website of Ixid. <laughs> They actually have a whole page on resources on code of conduct for educators in international investment dispute. And there's a segment on recorded events and podcasts. And the first is our interview. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, so anyway, sorry for the <laughs> side note. <laughs> no, but I think that's an interesting point. I meant to bring it up, but I, I missed it in my notes is that um, there's a distinction between if, because we're talking about the ethical rules that we're bound by from our individual jurisdictions, but also what the, what, how to monitor that in arbitration is actually quite different. So the difference is not necessarily disciplining the lawyers in terms of regulatory conduct uh, or regulating conduct, but it's more like disqualification in order to safeguard the integrity of the proceeding. So the lens is a bit shifted. So it's not about the conduct of the individual and more of safeguarding the the proceedings. And under that guise of maintaining the integrity is where we find or where the tribunal derives its power. Um, versus kind of regulate, regulating the discipline of, of the lawyer, because there was a quote that I found that said, we're not concerned with the integrity of the legal profession and its high standing in the community or the ideal role of the lawyer or the public confidence in the administration of justice. Okay. That's not yes, as exactly. our... Um, oh. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, cut that off again. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So the LCI rules actually had the most on... Um, the party representative. So going back what I meant, what I said about notification, the LCI rules under the under the recent revision um, says that there should be no change or addition to a party's legal representation without the approval of the tribunal. And I didn't know that mm. that was in the rules that no. uh, the tribunal could actually withhold approval where such change or addition could compromise the composition mm. of the tribunal or the finality of any award. And the this, this never is, a, it's obviously a fact-based assessment, but some of the kind of overarching principles that one can consider 
is you basically do a cost benefit analysis on which challenge, whether you go to the challenge, the arbitrator or counsel would be less disruptive. Um, Cause usually you would challenge the arbitrator, but in some cases that's not ideal. Um, so you have the general principle that a party should choose the counsel that represents it, but you mm-hmm. should also assess the stage at which the arbitration has reached when the counsel has been appointed and the efficiency resulting from maintaining the composition of the arbitral tribunal and any wasted costs, of course. So the, the big example is, as I said, counsel versus arbitrator, and you have a conflict of interest. And the two cases that I want to bring up quickly um, are investor state cases, obviously, because they're probably published, the only ones that were published. But um, Hrvatska v. Slovenia, uh, the respondent sought at a very late stage. It was two years after the tribunal had been constituted and 10 days before the sub- first substantive hearing to add a barrister, and that barrister was affiliated with some with a barrister's chambers, the same one as the president of the tribunal. And the claimant sought an order that the respondent refrain from using his services. Um, and while it conceded that the objection was not predicated on a lack of impartiality and independence of the president, um, the tribunal still said that the objection was well-founded, but um, they decided to remove counsel, so they approved the objection. But the that... This is not the best case because the parties in that case repeatedly affirmed that they didn't want, want the president to resign. Mm. Um, so in that case, th- this case was more of an ad hoc sanction, they call it, instead of a um, holding a more general scope of the understanding of this principle. But the standard derived at it from that tribunal was that whether there was an atmosphere of apprehension and mistrust in, in the proceedings as, as the basis. Um, and then they also got into the obligations of either party to disclose, um, which was not relevant since um, mm. it was just about the late stage edition. The second case that came up was Rome Patrol v. Romania. <laughs> um, and sometime after the tribunal had been constituted, the law firm representing the claimant announced that the case would henceforth be in the hands of a new attorney um, who until seven months prior had been a member of the same law firm at the claimant's party appointed arbitrator. Um, and on the basis of the asserted connection between the member of tribunal, the respondent moved to quali- disqualify the claimant's attorney, but it sought only the disqualification of counsel and did not remove the arbitrator. But the motion was denied um, or the application was denied in that case. Um, and the tribunal was willing to assume that it did have the power to control a party's choice of counsel, but stressed that the power could only be exercised in compelling and extraordinary circumstances. Um, and an interesting in the dicta of that of that award, um, or that yeah, that award, they um, they brought up because there is this inherent tension between the party's choice of their to choose their own party representative, and um, the the preserving the integrity of the proceedings. And so there we have the European Court of Human Rights principles of mm. um, choosing you know the the party representative that you want. And they said that there really isn't. A necessary tension between those two basic principles. Um, and there was also not any discussion on the mutability of the tribunal. So that's not something that you would basically take into consideration as one of the reasons why you should disqualify counsel instead of the, the tribunal. Um, another case in that come up between a conflict of interest between a party representative's clients um, was Frank, uh, the Frankfurt Airport Services Worldwide via the Philippines on the construction of the Manila Airport. And one of the council had previously had as a client the Manila Airport Authority. Um, and in that case, they found no t- 
taint um, in the impartiality and independence of the tribunal, although there was a substantial overlap between the type of information that the claimant's counsel could have had access to um, by the representation of both of those parties. Um, but as they said there, the only task was to ensure the extent that there had been dual representation that had not had that it did not impair the fair conduct of the proceedings. Um, the final point I want to say is what does disqualification really actually mean? Um, some people could limit it by saying that it's just having to do with the quote mouth that the arguments come from, um, but others are prohibiting participation. Uh, wholeheartedly and setting out the submissions of the tribunal or, or to the tribunal or any written submissions at all or having any substantive participation in the proceedings. Uh, so that is something that is still left open-ended and there hasn't been any cases that I found as far as deciding on the scope of the disqualification. Um, and I think that is ultimately left up to the tribunal's discretion how they want to um, mitigate any potential procedural unfairness as a result of the late addition of counsel. So um, I think that would be, you know, it, it's coming from any counsel, you know, we have in big law firms, you have a, a very antiquated term. I don't know if there's a better term, but the, the Chinese wall, we called it before. Yeah. Um, and the query whether that's actually, um, if you're actually trying to mitigate any problems with the impartiality and independence of the tribunal by disqualifying counsel, how does quarantining that counsel by just not presenting arguments to the tribunal actually effectively mitigate the, the potential prejudice. So mm -hmm. um, that's another question I leave to the audience. Whether they, <laughs> what actually is the sanction um, that they can do, they can give? And also to, to what extent are they, are the tribunal, is the tribunal or arbitrators um, comfortable issuing sanctions in this mm -hmm. world of, you know, repeat appointments and due process paranoia all of that question yeah, exactly i think there's two things right i mean their award can be of course said is i mean at least challengeable and i don't think any arbitrator likes that mm -hmm. um taking the risk um if they issue a maybe a too harsh of a decision and the second thing is of course what it means for um you know, for the arbitrator's reputation or whatever. It could be right. a good thing that they actually sanction misconduct, but that that's also a question. Yeah, I mean, basically this is like veiled as a guerrilla tactic and we talked about yeah. that in a previous episode and it's like, it's quite extreme and I don't think the examples they provided are, are that are the cases that I've referenced are the best examples of someone trying to use a guerrilla tactic to gain some sort of favor mm -hmm. um, in the proceeding. And so I don't know that the the violations or the misconduct is so stark to be able to justify such a, you know, an, yeah. an extreme decision like disqualifying counsel. Um, conflict which, of interest is different from like falsifying evidence or. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Option. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And there, cause I, and I really want to have another segment on sanctions is that the, cause yeah. there are other sanctions and there's also monetary pecuniary sanctions that a tribunal mm -hmm. can impose on misconduct of a party, for example. Um, and I think we should really look into that further because there's mm -hmm. a recent ICC case on that, but it's just not that this is why soft law emerges, isn't it? It's just not, um, we just don't have enough it was like hard examples of, of this type mm -hmm. of misconduct, but we are trying to regulate it. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. Happy Thanks, fun Brian. time. 
pleading foreign law. I said every law is foreign to us. And I meant that obviously as a joke, but there's a kernel of truth to that. Because if you are a Lithuanian lawyer in Lithuanian court, the definition of foreign law is easy. It's any law that isn't Lithuanian. <laughs> but if you're an international arbitration lawyer, you know, there's no foreign law. Everything is foreign law because we're in an international sphere, basically. You do have, of course, the applicable law. But I think what we're talking about when we are talking about foreign law, or that's the way I envision this, is law that we are not trained in, but that we still have to argue under or make decisions based on, basically. And for that obviously varies depending on where you are qualified and what law you would say that you are comfortable with or how many different jurisdictions. How do you feel about that? Have you had to fill out one of those like uh, potential arbitrator forms where you have to like, indicate which law you are either admitted to practice or comfortable with practicing? I think that's always <laughs> a bit tricky because I think senior yeah. arbitration people, you can see sometimes you see people's like web pages, like a, a bio and they state all the various laws that disputes they have acted in or sat on tribunals mm-hmm. have been governed by, you know, has been in 60 arbit- arbitrations governed by, and then they like list a bunch mm-hmm. of national laws. And I sometimes think, you know, the fact that you've had one case under one jurisdiction's law doesn't necessarily mean that you know a lot about that law or could apply. And it especially in. because it probably had to do with some like, obscure administrative law that is like not going to be applicable in any future case you may not even have had to apply the law because it could have been a case right. that like yeah, was exactly. on the facts I mean, or that it, settled it, that's or... what i was gonna say oftentimes you're looking at the law as, as a fact right i mean that's the the whole question well the world is divided into two types of law really my friends it's civil law or common law ah. and anything in between <laughs> falls under these categories so if you're dual qualified you are fine oh. <laughs> Well, I actually saw that in an application for a panel of for an institution, whether you were comfortable with civil and or common law. And I did I didn't want to answer that just based on <laughs> principle. Say <laughs> like no one both, which leaves very few yeah. laws left. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I think it's right or wrong, but I think it is accurate that many civil law trained lawyers think that they are able to deal with cases governed by other civil law jurisdictions and that common law common law trained lawyers are you know if you're an american lawyer you think you could probably do english law or australian law i think that that, you started with the civil lawyers because i would think that most common lawyers would would think that i think most common lawyers would think they can do anything exactly they're like oh yeah that's fine (laughs) we made the law everywhere in the world so (laughs) no that's italians in my world the italians always think that it's all based on roman law anyway there it is Or the French would say, c'est good Napoleonian. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I think that, I think you're onto something there as far as like co- comfort in pleading or comfort in adjudicating a foreign law, which is, do you know how that law operates? Or like, do you know as a civil, like as a common law lawyer, do you know that a civil law starts with the civil code, that those are based on mm, principles, mm, 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 that mm. this is how the interpretation of the law, because you wouldn't say, okay, well, this scholar has interpreted the civil law to be this. And as a common law lawyer, you know, and I'm. This is obviously in like the 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 infancy of one's career. You'd say, um, "Well, how how would I know that the scholar is the right interpret the the yeah. most the valid interpretation of the civil yeah, code?" Yeah, yeah. And vice versa for a civil law lawyer looking at a, a a court of first instance in a common law country. 
saying that, you know, how would I know that that is binding authority or how will mm-hmm. I check? Yeah, like comparative law is real. Comparative law as a subject does exist <laughs> yeah. for this very reason. You can't just like take a court decision out of its historical, sociological right. and legislative right. context and yeah, try to explain yeah. it to someone who has no knowledge of that system because there are so many things yeah. interacting. In arbitration, you can do that because you, you, or you at least you can try. And as I'm saying this, I realize there's a book on this that we should read and or talk about by Joshua Carton or Canton, a professor in Canada, on comparative law in practice in arbitration. I mm-hmm. haven't read it, but he is excellent and a good writer. He has probably thought about this, again, way more than mm. we are now. But for the present purposes, I think it's different in arbitration because you're basically trying to solve one problem and you're trying to educate a tribunal on a specific thing. And you can try to do that, but as a scientific exercise or like the way the law works, mm. that's not entirely responsible because it doesn't give you the whole but, answer. Well, wait, but you always work with local. I mean, I've always worked with local council. So yeah, but, yeah, of course, but there are always, of course, two local council then, or I mean, there are two, two competing interpretations of a law and one side is playing up to. some and one oh, side right. is playing up some other. Yeah, well, that yeah. goes to the point, because how do you resolve the issue of the fact that you know nothing about foreign laws? You can get a expert or lo- local counsel or an expert. Yeah. And then I think that has been uh, sitting and w- watching legal, two ec- legal experts contest a specific issue on foreign law. And the tribunal's just sitting there being like, who do I trust more? Yes. Like, how, yeah. how, is, how am I going to? And then and cross-examining. Also, it's so weird. Isn't it a matter of advocacy or pleading rather than, you know, an expert question? I mean, I think that's a whole other point. Is is our legal experts necessary, to be honest? Shouldn't you just have a local counsel like doing the, as you mentioned, there's always going to be, it's a question of interpretation, right? Yeah. So you would have a lawyer say, um, you know, an Israeli lawyer. Why would you bring in him as an expert? You would have him as local counsel, and the other side would have another local counsel. It's a matter of advocacy. I mean, of pleading. Of yeah, but it's also, and this is no secret, that a very good expert with a well-written expert report who's good on cross—that is advocacy. Yeah. That is great advocacy. Mm-hmm. Based, it's just advocacy in a different suit that seems mm-hmm. more persuasive yeah. than an actual advocate doing it mm-hmm. or could be of course depending but on as an problem. expert you're supposed to be neutral and not pro- i mean i don't know it's it's a. Uh, I yeah but that's I why often, i mean that's why yeah. it's more persuasive because you uh-huh. speak from like a different mm. perspective that comes yeah, yeah. with with a limitation that makes it more credible mm-hmm. if you do it well i think i mean ideally you have uh, a sole arbitrator or a tribunal consisting of arbitrators who are qualified and experienced in the applicable law Ideally, but very yeah, often that, it doesn't I mean, yeah, happen. Very in, often you In have investment this. arbitration, it's hardly the case, isn't it? Right? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's true. But <laughs> that, that, yeah, that never happens, basically. Yeah. Which is weird because the parties have agreed to appoint arbitrators that are not qualified under the law applicable to the contract. But Could that is okay also, with I mean, it? in treaty arbitration, that typically is no, no like applicable law to the contract because it's a treaty Could and be. you want arbitrate. Yeah, I mean, it comes in obviously in so many different iterations, but for the main issues in dispute oh, is international mm. law that's applicable. So you want someone who's well-versed mm. in international law, which is separate from foreign law because it's a different sphere mm-hmm. going all scholarly again. But that's also one law. Like you, you, you can't or you shouldn't maybe take on cases governed by international law if you don't have international law experience, even if you're an excellent Yeah, but that's why you should have at least one, at least, arbitrator that's well-versed in the host law, at least. The host state law, sorry. I mean, mm. I don't know. That's the 
Especially if you're trying, if you're thinking about your party appointed arbitrator and thinking about the dynamics of the tribunal and your party appointed arbitrator is the only one competent in the jurisdiction in which yeah. they're talking about, could be very helpful. Um, it, it also depends on your position, because I do think that ultimately a lot of these issues that are governed by a law that neither lead counsel or neither arbitrator is, is well-versed or qualified in, they turn not on the law so much as like common sense propositions or like, mm. you know, no arbitrator is going to dig into the, the details of a jurisdiction they have no relationship to. They are, they're going to be persuaded by like common sense reasonable. This is not the way, you know, you can, mm. you shouldn't read a contract like this. Basically it doesn't feel like the mm. appropriate solution that that is in many ways, a very strong factor as well. That's true. It seems like, I mean, we're speaking at it with such hesitation and trepidation and the <laughs> fact that we're entering into these realms without any expertise. Do you think that we should be concerned that this is how our industry and field operates? <laughs> I mean, it's the only, it's the only way, isn't it? Because if, if yeah. we wanted decision makers who are well-versed and experienced in deciding disputes or arguing disputes under local law, we would be in court in that mm-hmm. jurisdiction because that's where those lawyers are. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, you also have international arbitration lawyers and you can find like a constellation of counsel and arbitrators who are all right. qualified in the law in question. And that happens, of course, for big jurisdictions. Yeah, you see that every now happen. and then. Mm-hmm. But in the typical international transaction, you are going to have a country or a law, a jurisdiction involved that doesn't have 5,000 international lawyers. So right. If you want mm-hmm. an international dispute for the, all the reasons that we know, solved by arbitration rather than court, I think you're going to have to live with the fact that some of the key participants are not going to be Supreme Court justices in the <laughs> jurisdiction that <laughs> governs. Yeah, that's true. But this might this might change also, right, in the future. I mean, we, we I realize listening to ourselves, not just you guys, even me, that the discourse should evolve on this there there used to be sophisticated jurisdiction and not so much sophisticated jurisdiction and mm-hmm. how do you define sophistication i think it's changing you do have lawyers that are qualified mm-hmm. um, that's true but it's also like uh, you know i don't like to to romanticize and glamorize our profession but part of what we do as well the the jack of all trades master of none that you said sorry as well is, is to, ex- <laughs> to explain local law mm-hmm. even if you're yes. an excellent lawyer trained yeah. in jurisdiction that doesn't mean you can explain yeah. the contents of that law in in some sort of international context in English to three people who are not from your jurisdiction. We yes. are the like the translators of different mm-hmm. cultures and systems. And even yeah. if we are not like 100% well-versed in the jurisdiction in question, we might be better than other kinds of lawyers in yeah. communicating it. <laughs> what? Other kinds of lawyers? Well, I, I think, I think a good lawyer is the one that explains things clearly and convincingly, right? Yeah, of course. But for Many us, it's it. it's weird because each and every arbitration is separate. And mm-hmm. like, it's a complete universe of its own, depending on the key players. So you have to adapt to your, your way of explaining differs depending on who the audience is, obviously. And if you're in domestic court all the time, that's one kind of audience. But mm-hmm. each and every arbitration has a different kind of audience. And we are submitting like evidence in support of our arguments. It's not like we're shooting from the hip. So, you know, I was working with a Panamanian Supreme Court justice on Panamanian law, and I read the acts and and read the judgments that we were submitting and made sure that they made sense. And, you know, you, you do have that sense check. Um, yeah, that, some might say that you are qualified in Panamanian law, right? Right, because I can read the judgments. But uh, no, I think I think you're right. I think we do. We do have enough of a background to be able to sense check these things on just general legal philosophies. Mm-hmm. 
it is the fun yeah. part as well of the profession that we have this like mishmash of different legal traditions and, and applicable laws just thrown at us having to do something with it <laughs> absolutely yeah and in fact you did start by saying that you know all cases are different and you know the specific even if you have experience say with algerian law it might not concern the same provision in another matter which is true but it often does actually <laughs> revolve around the same principles of interpretation of contract mm. that law that was taken as i mean there are some like first sector. principles that are yeah. common to many but yeah. there are also a lot of things that are completely different yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and oddities in different mm. jurisdictions and and, mm-hmm. and in approaches as well for many different reasons i'll make a mental note of, of the many things that we should follow up on in a much more structured episode at some point to, to <laughs> speak to joshua and see if he wants to talk about his book because i think comparative yeah. law in practice yeah, is a great good. focus for uh, scholarship and for a good conversation. That's great. Yeah. Well, that was happy fun time. So yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, yeah. Lower bar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>